Let's pray. God, I pray tonight that you would, through your word, by your spirit, speak to our hearts. God, I would ask that you would use, as you always do, your inspired word to change us, to draw us closer to you, to somehow give us perspective that you have that we don't. We open our hearts to you tonight. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, welcome to renovation tonight again. I love worshiping here with you guys. And we were talking about this when we prayed tonight before we began the service about how blessed we are to have the musicians and the band and the and the people in this church that can play. Amen? I mean, these guys can play, right? I, I could not help but think about, um, was it, where's Matt or Jake? How long ago did we go to New York? About a year ago, we went down to New York City, and we worshiped with hundreds, maybe thousands, not thousands, maybe a thousand pastors from all over the world. And we, we went down there to lead worship for this conference, this pastor's conference in New York City. And I can't help but think of when we sing that song, the one before Amazing Grace. The Lord our God, what is it? Always, Always yes. Um, we, we played that song, and just before we had played that song, a pastor from Egypt had gotten up and spoke. And he stood in front of us while he was speaking to us last year, and you guys may remember this on the news last year, he looked at his phone and he said, the mob has now um, rioted in front of the church. My staff is stuck inside the church. They're throwing rocks through the windows. And Egypt was an absolute uproar as he was preaching to us while his family and his staff were back in the middle of the city in their church. The mob was going through. And uh, he continued to preach the word of God to us that night. And then we got up to lead worship, and we sang that song. And for us to be on the stage worshiping with a a bunch of Egyptian believers as I stood there and watched them with their hands up, just crying out, oh my God, he will not delay, my refuge and strength. It was like, it began to, uh, it affected me in the sense that worship is such an incredible opportunity that we have to be among people and to gain strength from the gospel of Jesus Christ and and to worship and sing out in a way that reflects how we feel about him. God uses, and we say this all the time, worship isn't about the song, right? It's not about great musicians and it's not about singing. Worship is about our lives. The gospel has it transformed us to such a degree that we walk out and live out our daily lives in such a way that it is a worship to God. And we say that so often, we forget to say sometimes that worship also is singing out to God. It really is. The Psalms are filled with it, with this opportunity we have as God has designed music in such a way to open up and affect our hearts so that we can display our affections to God and worship him and gain strength in in community and interact with him in such a way that we worship and sing out. And I know for many of you, it may be a foreign thing to stand in a a corporate worship service and worship and sing. But can I just, by way of, of encouragement to you, say, I encourage you to step out and worship beyond what you ever have before. As we gather together 
and sing out to God. Let your affections to him be known. It can be an incredibly powerful moment for you in your life as you draw closer to God. Is that okay that I say that? So here we are. We're in the book of Acts, and we have spent a significant amount of time talking about, from the beginning of this book all the way through, God's plan to expand his church. We see in the beginning of the book of Acts his plan to to not only have this church in Jerusalem, but to, to spread them to Judea and to Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the world. And so as we're reading through this narrative and as we're talking through this narrative, we're watching God do what he said he would do. We're watching God build the church up in Jerusalem and kick them out into Judea. And then we see the great persecution. We see Stephen is stoned and Philip begins to minister as they spread and are scattered. Philip begins to minister into Samaria. And God's plan isn't done yet, amen? God's plan for the church as he builds it and as we reflect on it in the beginnings of the spread of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see God do what he said he's gonna do. And the sovereign plan of God cannot be stopped by human beings, amen? God's plan cannot be stopped. And so here we have this narrative stuck in the middle, in in kind of the beginning section of Acts where we see the great persecutor of the church, Saul. And he is, he is a pro. I mean, this man is is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows the Old Testament. He's been reared and raised in his understanding of who God is and in Judaism, and he is a Pharisee. He is one who stands um, above his peers in that regard. And he has now become, in the beginnings of the church, in the book of Acts, the greatest persecutor of the church. And God comes And as we just read in this narrative, um, and as you heard last week, as Mike talked about his conversion experience, we see God knock Paul on his can, right? Saul, he's not Paul yet. God shows up and he knocks him off onto onto his backside and he shows himself to him and we see this incredible conversion experience that Paul has And now, after this conversion experience that we talked about last week, we see Paul's response to what God's done in his life as he begins to go back and start his ministry. I want you to think about that for a minute. This is, you know, this narrative, as I thought about it over the last couple of weeks, this is one of those things that as you look at the people, as you look at the players in this narrative, you almost have to step inside of it and take it from different people's perspective and see, kind of put yourself in their shoes and see how they would respond, how they would have felt. First of all, you have Paul, right? I mean, think about Paul in this moment. He's been the persecutor of the church. He's been, he's been very zealous. Paul stood over the garments, watching over the garments of the men who were throwing stones into the flesh of Stephen. Paul stood and encouraged and, and, and charged them as they murdered one of the brethren. And now here he is, himself, responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only was Saul's conversion surprising, but the plan that God has for his life is even more surprising. 
You see, because God's about to use this man in one of the most remarkable ways in the history of this planet, and it's not in the way that you think he would, because you would think that Paul would be the perfect ambassador to the Jews. He'd be the perfect person to go into the synagogues and to argue and to debate and to, and to win Jews over to Jesus. Here he was, the leader of the Jews, the section of Jews that were committed to killing and stopping Christianity and the spread of the church, and now he's been converted, he's been transformed, and he would go back into the synagogue right? This would be the guy that can argue and debate and win the battle. But as we see in this passage, God has a whole other plan for him because his plan was what? The uttermost parts of the world. And Paul was God's man for the Gentiles. God had something else in mind. I love this first part of the passage. And let's take a look at it again in Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. Let's look at verse 19 through 21 right now. Taking food, he was strengthened. Saul proclaims Jesus in the synagogues. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Verse 20. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here? For this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest. So here's Paul, the man who initially was leading the charge to bring these people bound before the chief priests. He was initially one of the dudes that was a big part of the killing of Stephen. And now they see he's proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. And I can't help see this rise out of Scripture, that Paul's conversion that we talked about last week has led to not just Paul being saved, but Paul experiencing massive life change. Do you guys see that in the passage? Here's what I see, and, and I, I'd be remiss if we don't talk about it tonight. When you see the conversion of Paul in the beginning of his ministry, here's what we see God do when the gospel encounters Paul's life. We see God become his Lord. There is lordship in the life of Paul. Not only did Paul get knocked off the throne of his horse onto his backside, but he was knocked off the throne of his life. Jesus came to Paul as Lord. We see the gospel being about lordship, not just saviorship. So many of us so many times think of the gospel of Jesus Christ as Jesus just saving me. Jesus saving me from hell. Jesus saving me from myself. Jesus saving me from sin. But there is so much more. When Jesus becomes your savior, he must become your Lord. And we see Paul's life completely change. The course of his life completely change. We see a man who is a Pharisee and who's committed to the killing of Christians and the stopping of the spread of Christianity. This is the mission of his life. And now the mission of Paul's life has absolutely, completely changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is now charged and committed to standing in front of those who would come against the Christians and proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. His whole life mission has changed. He wasn't just saved and then going about his life in the same direction. The direction of his life was totally transformed because Jesus, because of the gospel, is now his Lord. Amen? We gotta think about this. In your encounter with the living God, have, has there been merely an intellectual salute to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yep, 
I'm intellectually saluting to the fact that Jesus is Lord. God is the king of the universe. He died for my sins. He's forgiven me. I accept it. And you just, thank you. But somehow, this idea of lordship has not come alongside your understanding of what the gospel of Jesus Christ means to you. That can't be. That's not what the gospel is. When the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God encounters your life, he needs to become your Lord and my Lord, meaning he's in charge, meaning the mission of my life has now changed, meaning I don't just give an intellectual salute to what I know Christianity to be, but I have now committed my life under the lordship of Christ, and he's in charge. And he is the one who's governing where my life goes and what it does and decisions I make. My value system is now changing. My value system needs to become his. Amen? That's what we see in verse 19. We see the lordship of Christ take over Paul's life. And he is now committed to the mission of God. He's not just converted intellectually. His life has changed. And he's proclaiming Jesus as the son of God. Look at verse 22. But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now here's what we see, and we have to kind of take a step back biblically and take a look at, take a look at what has happened between verses 21 and verses 22. Because in Luke's narrative in the book of Acts, he's not telling us everything. We learn everything as we read other portions of Paul's writings. But between verse 21 and verse 22, Paul went somewhere else. Luke's just telling the story in, the, in a sense, in a, in a broad overview. But we see Paul going to Damascus and confounding the Jews. But before he did that, you've got to take a look at Galatians. And if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Galatians chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, as Paul begins to describe this moment in his life as he's writing to the people in Galatia. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely je- zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So here's what we see in the book of Galatians. We see that before Paul goes to Damascus, he goes to the Arabian desert. He goes off to Arabia. And we don't know how long he stayed in Arabia. But after this conversion, before he goes to Damascus, he goes to Arabia. And we can see from what we know about Paul and his understanding of the scriptures that Paul didn't, as he said in Galatia, go, go right to the apostles to, to discuss what had just happened to him. But Paul on his own began to reflect on the scriptures. Paul on his own began to reflect on the Old Testament and began to see Jesus Christ throughout the entire Old Testament, throughout the prophets, throughout the Psalms, throughout the Pentateuch, and and his incredible understanding of the Old Testament. When Jesus encountered his life, this brilliant man who had incredible basis of knowledge for the word of God in the Old Testament now began to see Jesus throughout the whole of scripture. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you've ever had that happen in your life, but I know that I've had moments as someone who grew up in church, 
not everybody has, but I did. I kind of grew up sitting in church and sitting in Sunday school and remember like the felt board with the little dudes on the characters on the felt. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And they would walk along on the felt board. And, and I remember learning all the stories as a young man through church. But there came a time in my life when Jesus really encountered my life. When the, when the word of God came and the Bible describes it as illumination. It's, it's almost like I, my, my old pastor who, who I grew up with said it this way. It's like having a warehouse full of dried up stuff pallets and pallets full of stuff stocked in your head and someone just lights it on fire and you begin to understand as God illuminates the word of God to you. And, and I would imagine to some degree Paul began to experience this now. As an Old Testament scholar, he now recognizes Jesus Christ as the son of God. And he comes back from Arabia and he goes to Damascus and he goes into the synagogues. And can I tell you something? As you can imagine, Saul could debate right? He knew what he was talking about, and he didn't lose the battle. Like, he didn't lose the debates. He confounded the Jews. He was, he was able to intellectually, with his words, speak through the Old Testament, speak through the, the narrative of who Jesus was, and convince and, and, and win the debate that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But how many of you see in this passage, he loses the war, right? He, he wins the debate, and then they want to kill him, <laughs> So here's Paul returning from Arabia to Damascus. And he's preaching in the synagogues, confounding the Jews. Let's look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, so they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him into a basket. So here we see Paul returns, and he's winning the debate among the Jews, but they want to kill him. They're upset at him. They don't like what he's preaching. They don't like what he's saying. They don't like this one who was, and when we say the Jews, it's not all of them, but they're referring to those particular Jews, like Paul, the Pharisees, those who would want to stop, set out to stop Christianity and the spread of the church. They don't like what their former colleague is now saying, and they plot to kill him. What we see here is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot and will not be stopped by man. Their plot to kill him will not stop what God is going to do. Their plot to, to, to squelch the church, their, their, their plot to persecute the church, their plot to end this thing before it starts, their fear that somehow this Christianity is offending their sensibilities of, of who they are and who God is, their, their belief that this is somehow blasphemous, that this is somehow against the word of God. As God begins to move, no matter what they do, God uses it to spread his church. Amen. They want to kill Paul, Paul's rescued. They want, they got their best guy who's out there persecuting and trying to stop the church. God converts him and turns him into an advocate for himself. How amazing is that? I had a friend in 1995, and I think I've told you about him before, who felt like he was called to go be a missionary in the Dominican Republic. I, I was in college at the time. He was a good friend of mine, and, and he began to ask me to get up early in the morning and pray with him. And so me and another young man from our Bible school, we'd get up, and, and when I say early, this dude was like one of those four in the morning guys. Like, like, and this was college, right? So I wasn't getting a lot of sleep, and he was like 
be at my house by five o'clock. So we'd get up four, 4.30, we'd go out to his house in the city of Portland, and I remember showing up at his house every morning, and we, I, I would go down into his basement. He didn't pray with me either. He would just come to my house and pray. So I would go down into the basement by myself, and he was up in his bedroom right above me in the basement, and I would pray, kind of. I would doze off once in a while, I gotta admit. <laughs> Only to be awoken by me hearing his weeping and his crying out for God to do something in the lives of the people in the Dominican Republic who he had broken, God had broken his heart for these people. And he moved down to the Dominican Republic with his family. And he had a conviction. His conviction was, I'm not gonna go be a missionary behind some gate in a big house and every once in a while go outside my gated house and hang out with the people and feed them and preach them the gospel. His conviction was, if I'm going to be a missionary to the Dominican Republic, I'm going to live with the people that God's called me to reach. He moved into one of the worst barrios in the Dominican Republic, in La Vega. He moved into this barrio, and he moved into a, a, a shack in the midst of this, this barrio of drug dealers and thieves. In fact, when I went down there, one of, the, one of his guys who he had led to Jesus, who had become one of the guys that worked with him and functioned as a translator for us when we were down there, he said to me, he said, when, when Rod first moved down to the Dominican Republic, we would have never stepped foot in that barrio. And they were from there. They'd have never gone there. And he moved right into the middle of it. And Rod tells the story when he first moved into the barrio in the Dominican Republic that this was, a, was, a, was a, a, a barrio of drug dealers and thieves and gangs and there was one head gang leader who ran the drug trade and in the, in the, in all the stealing that, that came out of that barrio. And Rod went right after him and preached the gospel to this man. In fact, someone had, in the gang had stolen Rod's propane tank that heated his home. And he, he used the propane for all sorts of things. And Rod, for three weeks went door to door in the barrio, knocking on the door, telling them that somebody had stolen his propane tank and he would share the gospel with them and he would remind them if, if they could just tell him who it was, he wanted his tank back. And he went door to door and door to door and door to door. And eventually he was confronted by this gang leader and Rod shared the gospel with him and he was converted. Jesus took hold of this man's life. This man got saved, his wife was saved, his children were saved, his 13 grandchildren were saved. And this man became a church planter who has since gone up into the mountains of the Dominican Republic and started another church. When I went down to the Dominican Republic with Rod, we had built a school, they had built a church, they had built a leadership center. The entire barrio had turned around and was no longer a barrio of drug dealers and, and thieves, but was a flourishing area. And he is now has a leadership center in the Dominican Republic where he's sending missionaries to Haiti. God knows what he's doing and the gospel won't be stopped. He took the head drug dealer in, the, in this barrio and he converted him. God moved in his life and he has now become an impetus for church planning and the spread of the gospel in the Dominican Republic. Here we see Paul's obvious call would have been to the Jews, but God's sending him to the Gentiles. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 30 through 33 with me. Here's Paul recounting this moment when they were plotting to kill him and he had to escape through the wall. As we see in the book of Acts, this moment that we just read about, Paul's talking about it in his letter, his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 30 through 33. If I must boast, I will boast 
of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, here he is telling the Corinthians, at Damascus, the governor under King Artis was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall and escaped his hands. Here's Paul speaking of weakness, and if he was to boast, he's going to boast in weakness, because I want you to think about it with me for a minute. Here's a man who understood the word of God, a man who was converted, who goes away to the Arabian desert, who looks through the scriptures and sees Jesus throughout, who comes back and begins to confound the Jews, and he goes to them thinking he's going to be the guy now to share the gospel as Jesus, the son of God, to the Jews, and when he does it, they want to kill him. And he has to be snuck out of the city in a basket and lowered down through the wall. And as Paul recounts this now as the man who God has sent to the Gentiles, not the Jews, he says, listen, I'm going to boast in weakness. Here's where I thought I was going, and God was taking me in another direction. God knows what he's doing. And, I can, and this is, if, if you look at it in 2 Corinthians, this is Paul at the end of his recounting of all the awful things that he's been through. I've been whipped. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. Listen, I'm not boasting in how great I am. I'm boasting in weakness. Here's where I thought I was a big deal, and God came in, and he did something completely different than what I had in my mind. I'll never forget the moment as a young man, and, and it's continuing moments in my life, believe me, but the first moment as a young man that I realized God was smarter than me. I mean, so many of us, especially as we're, you know, grown up in this community and in this culture, we have a, an incredible idea of who we are and what we're supposed to be and what we want to do, don't we? I mean, especially these generations coming up. Can I just say it? I mean, we are raising a generation of narcissists, are we not? Come on. I mean, we're raising it. I've never seen it. Listen, can I? I'm sorry. I have kids, Okay. I've never seen more people so wrapped up in the lives of their kids. I mean, everything is about their kids. They are the apple of their eye. Everything is about them. They go to 15 sports events a week. We got practice. We got this. We got our travel team. We're going all over. Everything is about the, the, the kids are like, woo, everything is about me. Life is about me. We are raising young people who really believe that everything, the world revolves around their lives. It, it may have been more like that when I was growing up than some of you, but it wasn't really like that when I was growing up. I mean... I don't remember the world revolving around me. I remember going to practice when they wanted to take me, right? I mean, I remember getting involved in sports when I was like in seventh grade. We got six-year-olds with like personal trainers. I mean, it's insane. Your kid is not going to play in the NFL, all right? <clears throat> and we grow up and we, we have this idea of who we are or who we want to be. I know what I wanted to do. I grew up and I had this idea, this plan. This is where I'm going to go. This is where my life's going to go. This is what I want to do. And the moment I realized that God was smarter than me, that he had purposes for me, that he was to be my Lord, I was to be on his mission, the moment that happened in my life, things began to change. And believe me, it needs to continually happen in my life. I need to continually realize his lordship in my life. But how many of you guys know that he knows what he's doing? Amen? Amen. Amen. He knows what he's doing. Many times, it's, it's, it's opposite of what we think is, is something we want to do. But when he calls us to do something, he backs his play, and he will be there for you, and you will experience a life 
that is full of sacrifice and difficulty, and it'll be on mission, but it'll have the kind of value and the kind of joy that goes beyond our ability to understand, as the Bible describes. Amen? So many of us wonder why we're not happy or why we're frustrated or why things are tough. It's because we're going about life the way we want to do it, doing the things that we think are going to make us happy when God's calling you to give and sacrifice and, and, and submit your life to his lordship so that he can do with you what he designed you to do. And it may not be easy and it may not be full of, of happy, happy times, but it's going to have that value and that joy that goes beyond your ability to understand. Paul was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was whipped. He was snuck out a wall in a basket, but he lived the life that God had called him to live, and he became the dude that wrote Corinthians and Romans and Galatians and Thessalonians. He wrote most of the New Testament and explained to us, given the context that God had given him in his life, he was able through God's inspiration to explain to us more about who God is than just about anybody. Amen? Amen? He writes in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Amen? For his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things, but I count it as rubbish. Think about that. All the things I want to do, all the things I dream that I would have for my life, I count them as loss for the sake of him. And as I engage him in the plan that he has for me, that stuff is rubbish. It's absolute garbage compared to him Amen. and what he has for me. Amen. Amen? Does that make sense? You know, being under the lordship of Jesus is a free, you ever hear this preach, it's a free gift, but it'll cost you everything. Okay, yes, it costs me everything, but everything that I thought I had is rubbish compared to him. Amen? Verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Go figure. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. This is an amazing moment. Now let's take a step out of Paul's perspective and put ourselves into the perspective of the disciples and into the perspective of Barnabas. Think about this narrative for a moment. Here's Paul. He's converted. Paul was the dude that was standing over the watch over the garments of the guys that were stoning Stephen. Paul was the dude that was charged with going in and, and bringing the disciples bound to the chief priests and the elders. Now he's been converted and he shows up. Hey guys, guess what? I'm a believer now. Whoa. I mean, how many of you guys think you'd have been a little suspicious, a little nervous? How many of you think you would have been a little upset? I'd have been a little upset. This dude stood there and cheered on the guys that threw rocks into the flesh of my friend Stephen and killed him. 
How many of you would, would be a little mad? This is the guy that has been making our life miserable and trying to arrest us and bind us up and stop us from preaching. How many of you think you would have been a little upset? But Barnabas steps up. Barnabas, who is, is known as the encourager, and I don't know why he stepped up other than the gospel of Jesus Christ had taken hold of Barnabas's life and had taken root in his heart to such a degree that he lived a life that had been transformed by the gospel in such a way that he encouraged and he vouched for Paul that the gospel had actually changed Paul's life and he actually was a disciple. And he held to the ideals of his faith because the gospel had changed his life and he encouraged and he vouched for Paul. How many of you guys know we need more men like Barnabas? In 1800 in the United States of America was the most brutal presidential election ever. You think politics are bad now? You think people throw mud now? You think those commercials are annoying now? The things that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson said about each other would make you cringe. These guys were vicious. Read about it sometime. They were brutal. Politics was nothing now compared to what they did. They threw mud at each other. They slung mud like you wouldn't believe. And this was a vicious, vicious, vicious presidential election. In fact, the second president of the United States, John Adams, used to use this thing called the Sedition Act. When a newspaper writer would write bad things about John Adams, he would throw him in jail. When they spoke out about him in such a way that he didn't like, he used the Sedition Act to throw them in prison. And Thomas Jefferson spoke out against the Sedition Act. He said, this is ridiculous. This is in violation of the First Amendment of the United States. And, and, and he didn't like the Sedition Act. And so here is this brutal, vicious presidential election, and Thomas Jefferson gets elected over John Adams and Aaron Burr, who... That's another thing, and, then, and Jefferson becomes president of the United States. And guess what the Jeffersonians said? Let's throw the Federalists in jail. Come on, dude. They were throwing us in jail the whole time John Adams was president. Now that you're president, let's throw the Federalists in jail. Anytime they speak out about you, let's throw them in jail. You know what Thomas Jefferson did? He said no. And he repealed the Sedition Act because of the ideals that he held. Thomas Jefferson preserved, really, at the time, a very, very, very fragile country. Because despite the temptation to respond in kind to what had happened to him, he held to his ideals and he wouldn't do it. And he stopped what probably would have ended up being a civil war in the collapse of the United States in its very infancy. It's remarkable men like that in the scope of history that saved our country. Because through the temptation, he stopped and he held to his ideals. Look at this here. The temptation would be to kick the crap out of Saul. The temptation would be to not accept him into the body of Christ. But Barnabas, who had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, stood up and he vouched for, for Saul. And, and he was a part of creating one of the greatest leaders. He was a maker of leaders, Barnabas was. And God's calling us to do the same thing. Here's what I'm getting at, and here's what I see. And I'm gonna wrap this up quickly. Here's what I see. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is taking root in our hearts, and Jesus and the lordship of Christ is taking over, and he is our Lord and he's in charge of our lives, something should begin to happen in us by which we behave differently in the face of what everybody else else would do in a given situation. Amen? Amen? Do you hear what I'm saying? God has called us to live differently amongst each other. 
God has called us to live lives that forgive. Why? Because we've been forgiven. God has called us to live lives that are full of commitment because of his commitment toward us. God has done things in our lives, and as the gospel and the lordship of Christ changes us, it should cause us to react differently to people than what everybody else would do. And we see Barnabas do this in this situation, and it creates a moment where, think about it, Paul, rejected by the Jews who now want to kill him, and now trying to be adopted into the family of God because God has converted him, the disciples are like, whoa, Paul's all alone. And Barnabas steps up and vouches for him and encourages him. And Paul's accepted. Amen? God's called us to be like Barnabas in the lives of people. How many leaders and transforming, catalytic type people are there who are yet to be saved, who would be perceived as enemies to the gospel today? How many people has God called us to speak to and love where the temptation is to hate and to reject? That's what God's called us to do. Verse 28, so we went out in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him again. And here we see God has bigger plans for Paul to fulfill his mission, the uttermost parts of the world. Look at Acts 22, if you have your Bibles, and I'm going to close in a moment. We see this moment recounted. Acts 22, verses 17 through 21. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this is what happened to Paul, as you see in chapter nine at the end of this passage, where you see that they're plotting to kill him again, and he becomes aware of the plot, and he escapes. We see later in Acts 22, he says, the reason he became aware of the plot is because when he was in the synagogue, Jesus spoke to him. He fell into a trance, and he spoke to him. And he had this interaction with Jesus, where he said, listen, they know that I was the one who was shedding their blood. They know that I stood over the garments of those who killed Stephen. And God spoke to him and he said, listen, go far away from here because I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Here's what we gotta grasp from this passage of scripture. God wants to be our Lord. God wants his gospel to take such root in our hearts that our life changes and that we're no longer on the mission that we've designed for ourselves, but we're on God's mission for our lives, amen? And God is going to do things in your life that your brain between these two ears, this two and a half cups of gray and pink electric putty, can't comprehend. God is so much bigger than what you can come up with. He wants to do something in your life. If you submit to his lordship, he will do it. Amen? Amen. And he wants to use us to encourage and support those who may be perceived as enemies. But he's going to do something in their lives too because his plan can't be stopped. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for who you are and what you do. We don't always get it. We don't always know what's going on. Our perspective sometimes is so small. But tonight, we recognize that you do. You get it. 
You know what's going on. You see the beginning from the end. You're sovereign. Your plans can't be stopped. Your gospel will will move out where you've designed it to move out. It will impact the lives who you've called and your church will be built. We thank you that we get to be a part of it. Help us tonight to submit to your lordship. Help us tonight to allow your gospel to take root in our lives in such a way that the mission of our life, the very plans we have change. We allow you to be in control. You are a great God. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen.